Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Eric, how you doing today, sir? Well, I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on, right? Indeed, there is. Um, I don't know how much we want to talk about Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. We should at least. But I want to name that, especially in a text that says, "Blessed are those who mourn." I don't real, I don't feel blessed right now. I just don't feel real blessed. Um, I was hoping that she would live forever. Um, yeah, it's tough. really is. We know a lot of you guys who listen to the show are probably in a state of mourning right now. You know, our thoughts and prayers are with all of y'all as well. We hope that in this time of mourning, you take the season to mourn, and then we can all recommit ourselves to working for the better world that Ruth Bader Ginsburg was working on. So with that... Before we go ahead and begin today's episode, wanted to let you guys know that we are proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Siblings in Christ, we are in the book of 3rd Nephi, chapters 12 through 16. The Savior has just landed. Oh gosh, landed. He has just arrived to the Western Hemisphere, to the Nephites, and has begun teaching them. When we last uh, picked up, or last left off, the Lord has just declared to the people what his doctrine is and commanded them not to change it or, or add to it or take away from it. And now we are moving into 12, where for chapters 12 through 14 are in essence the Sermon on the Mount. Now, Derek, I don't know if you have any literary, historical, or theological context you want to give to these uh, chapters before we get into the content, but uh, I have a couple of questions if you don't. Okay, we'll start with your questions. So, as a missionary, oftentimes we would give people, when, when we told them about the Book of Mormon, we would give it to them and we would tell them to read third Nephi 11. Mm -hmm. And I was always a little bit scared of what would happen because most people in South Africa are already Christian. What's going to happen if they keep reading after chapter 11 and they find whole chapters from the Bible in this text? Like, what are they going to think about that? Cause you know, they're basically the book of Mormon quotes the whole sermon on the Mount. And I was like, First of all, are we going to address what appears to be plagiarism in there? And secondly, what is the actual purpose of the Sermon on the Mount being situated here? Because that was probably my biggest question, is why the Savior is basically kicking off his ministry to the Western Hemisphere by quoting the Sermon on the Mount. An important sermon, you know, no doubt, but uh, why, is he, why is he doing it exactly? And I just wanted to see if you had any feelings before I shared mine. Well, it very much is an inaugural discourse. It's fronted of the five discourses in, in Matthew where he's really talking about the inbreaking and indwelling of the kingdom of God in a radically new and different way after centuries of a dispossessed people longing for the coming of a Messiah, right? And he's saying right now this is happening. And so that's what it's doing in the book of Matthew. Now, as a scholar... I'm going to ad admit that the evidence is very suggestive that the English text of the Book of Mormon is dependent on the King James Bible. I mean, that's 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 just what it is. We're gonna have to deal with that, right? So, what is it doing here? I really think that the Book of Mormon is grafting on these same hopes and dreams of the people of Israel in the old world onto the hopes and dreams of the people of Israel in the New World. And the best way to do that is to situate the, the Sermon on the Mount again in this place. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's making some sense. And I want to add something very interesting about the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. What's very interesting is that it is not centered on institutions. Can you say some more about that? There's nothing about the church. In, okay. in five through seven, in Matthew five through seven, there's nothing about obey the church leaders. There's nothing about the church is the whole point of everything. There's a lot of individual moral wisdom for people, 
a lot of application of the Torah, a lot of tightening of the Torah around the demands of a higher ethical law. Um, but there's nothing about the church. In fact, Jesus in the in, in the four Gospels only mentions the word church three times. Ecclesia in Greek. Once in Matthew chapter 16 and twice in Matthew chapter 18. But when you look at, at 5 through 7, it doesn't say blessed are you who have a, a, a membership record number. Right? Blessed are you who have checked off all these ordinance boxes. Blessed are you who you know, have a, a, there's like a little database in Salt Lake with a, with your name in it, right? That's not what he's saying here. He's saying that the indwelling of the kingdom of God is breaking into individual lives when you live this higher moral dignity. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. And I think that explains sort of the literary context here because this is truth that will be relevant to uh, every people on every continent who want to follow in Christ's leadership. So the implication there being that if Jesus appeared to anybody else in the world, he probably would have repeated this. Right. Okay. Right. Got you. Got you. So in my own, I had to read ahead a little bit to try to find some clues as to, you know, why this was situated here. And, you know, I wasn't about to do a whole bunch of reading and maybe I'll touch upon this again next week when we discuss more of these chapters and more of Christ's teachings to people. But in just my quick little skim for some clues, I uh, was able to see a little bit about why the Sermon on the Mount might be here. And uh, what I found is that the Sermon on the Mount message seems to be amplified and clarified in, you know, Jesus' subsequent ministry to the Nephites and just that whole exposition. For example... I found the uh, Sermon on the Mount injunction to let your light so shine, which we find in chapter 12, verse 16. It's expanded upon to the effect that the light is Jesus himself, which we read in chapter 18, uh, verse 14. And then there's also the Sermon on the Mount's teaching that in Jesus is the law fulfilled, which I can anticipate is going to be a conversation that we you know, spend some degree on time, some degree of time on next week. And, uh, it's, it's not just quoted later, but additional information is actually given that Jesus is the one who gave the law in the first place, which is, you know, pretty cool. We also see the warning against uh, vain repetitions in prayer. I think that's in chapter 13. It's amplified by showing that the Nephites avoided this because it was given unto them what they should pray in uh, chapter 19, mm -hmm. verse 24. So already we're seeing how the Sermon on the Mount seems to be laying some kind of groundwork for Christ's ministry to the Nephites. And that might get a little bit lost in our focus on the Sermon on the Mount, which, you know, alone is a brilliant discourse, one of my favorite throughout the Bible, and definitely one of my primary evidences for saying, for why Jesus would say Black Lives Matter. But like, just being able to take a brief moment to skim those chapters and just see what the Sermon on the Mount might be laying the groundwork for just really helped me come to a greater understanding of how, one, how integral the Sermon on the Mount was to Jesus Christ's ministry and what effect he's trying to lay on to the Nephite nation. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd also want to add, I don't want to downplay the differences between the Book of Mormon text and Matthew's text because there are some significant differences there. And I like how my edition, which is the Maxwell Institute Study Edition, that dude's got to start paying us now. Because like, how many Grant times Hardy. have we? How many times has we <laughs> plugged Grant Hardy's book? If you're I mean, listening, bro, pay us. It's it's really good because it in these chapters it puts in bold all of the places where there's a change or an addition to the text, and so you can really see what what's going on here. And some of this might be that the Nephites were in a better place and better positioned in order to understand more of the truth that he that Jesus didn't feel um, that the people in Galilee were were ready for so uh, I actually wanted to take a moment to talk a little bit about the Sermon on the Mount and what we could potentially 
learn from it. And of course, the first thing that hits us is the is the Beatitudes. And there is a lot of significance in the Beatitudes for people on the margins. Now, like I said before, I regularly use the Beatitudes as evidence that Christ would say Black Lives Matter. And if you attended uh, the Colorado Faith Forum last night, you'll hear me repeat myself a few times because I made the case using the Beatitudes from the Sermon on the Mount. But I want to take a moment to give attention to what Jesus says is important because it will really put into perspective why hashtag all lives matter is an inappropriate sentiment to express in the midst of black pain or any marginalized pain, generally speaking. You're in essence saying, blessed are the, blessed are these, the opposite of these two. And we say the opposite of these things. We say all lives because we're uncomfortable with focusing on what Jesus says to focus on. And what does he want us to focus on exactly? He wants us to focus on where the pain is. Just a couple of chapters prior to the Beatitudes in, uh, in the book of Luke, Jesus gives, just before he gives the Sermon on the Mount, he reads from Isaiah to declare his divinity in his first sermon, where he declares his identity, where he declares who he is. Uh, these are the verses he reads. This is uh, Luke 4.18, or you can actually just go straight to Isaiah 61, verse 1, if you want to read the words straight from what the Savior is quoting. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. So straight away, in Jesus Christ's first sermon ever, he's basically letting us know his focus is going to be on the people who are in pain. His focus is going to be on the people who are on the margins, the people who need help. That is where he wants, that is where he wants our focus to be. That's where he declares his focus is. Again, that was from Isaiah 61. Now let's look at the other scripture the Savior also alludes to. In, uh, Luke's, in Luke 4, which is Isaiah 58, 3, verses 5 through 6. And as a reminder, this is, this is occurring in the context of God's critique of the false religiosity of Israel. I'm going to read from the uh, NIV translation because it, I like the words it uses better and it makes more sense to me. Why do we fast, but you do not see? Why humble ourselves, but you do not notice? Look, you Look, you serve your own interest on your fast day and press all your workers. Is such the fast that I choose a day to humble oneself? Is it to bow down the head like a bulrush and to lie in sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bands, to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Again, this reaffirms what Jesus is about. He declared it in Isaiah. He declared it in Luke. He's declaring it now in the Beatitudes, and he's declaring it, well, he declared it to the, to the people in the Eastern world. He's declaring it again to the Nephites in the Western world, that this is his mission. His mission is to the marginalized. True religion, according to the Savior here, ought to result in concrete change. That seems to be what he's saying in Isaiah 58, the breaking of actual yokes. He's moving from, uh, he's moving from a religious orthodoxy to a religious, I think the word would be orthopraxy. Does that sound right? Some right. Like mm-hmm. praxis. I don't know, but he's like talking about actual change, actual practice of real religion. That is what Jesus wants to address here. So if it's not clear by that point or, you know, by now, the Savior really is about liberating people. He really is about the marginalized. He really is about focusing on those who are in pain at the moment, valuing the undervalued, dignifying the uh, the disgraced, liberating the captive. The Savior is all about that life. So I'm wondering... Um, our readers might not know this, but guess what happened after he said these words in Luke 4? Oh, yeah. They wanted to throw him <laughs> off a cliff. Yeah, okay. they did not like that. They did not like that. They wanted to throw him off a cliff. And I think if we're called to take up our cross and follow Jesus' example, and no one's wanting to throw us on a cliff, we're not doing it right. right? <laughs> I think that's why, Ka- you know, people forget that Kaepernick is a Christian. 
at least um, he was several years ago when I heard him uh, talk about it. And that's real. And people need to to realize that there's there's a connection between what Christ is doing in the world and making people upset. Mm-hmm. So look at these. Uh, listen to what Jesus is telling us to focus on as we read these Beatitudes. We're in 3 Nephi 12. First thing he says. Verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit who come unto me. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Can you hear people standing up be like, hold up, Jesus. Blessed are blessed are the rich in spirit as well. Blessed are those who are already comfortable, who who don't come blessed are those who don't come unto you. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven too, Jesus. Like, can you imagine just getting up in the middle of this and correcting the Lord, but butting the Lord as he tells you what it is to focus on? He goes on, Blessed are all they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. But blessed are all those who don't mourn too, Jesus. Blessed are all lives. Blessed are all people in all states of mind. They should be blessed too, Jesus. Uh, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What's the opposite of meek? Proud? That sound like a good mm-hmm. adjective? Blessed are the proud too, Jesus. Blessed are all people. Blessed are all they who do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled with the Holy Ghost. Blessed are those who are not hungry either, Jesus. Blessed are those who are already full, Jesus. Just... This is what All Lives Matter sounds like to me. We are addressing, like, obviously we know that Jesus Christ died for all people. Like, that's how much he loves everybody. But he is giving us very specific instructions throughout the Beatitudes that we need to focus on the people who are dispossessed, the people who are outcast, the people who are in pain, the people who have been disenfranchised in some way. He wants to make sure that those who are not experienced experiencing the blessings that he intends for all to experience he wants to make sure that they are focused on blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy blessed are the pure in heart blessed are the peacemakers blessed are they who are persecuted for my name's sake blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake and as you already said derek Um, Jesus Christ is not saying this is the way things are currently, but he is saying this is the way he wants things to be. He is breathing into the Nephite nation as he breathed into the people back in Israel. He is saying, this is what I want you to focus on. These are the people I want you to help. These are the people I want you to lift up because this is what my mission is too. And he doesn't just teach this stuff. He practices radical compassion and defines throughout his entire ministry to do basically what he is saying all throughout the Beatitudes. Yeah, I just want to to name two things right now. Is And you brought this out last night, is that Matthew just has the Beatitudes, but Luke has a shorter number of Beatitudes, but pairs them all with woes hmm. to the opposite of everything that categorizes uh, those who are blessed. And the second thing to name is, just like you said, People people want to have this, a lot of Latter-day Saints want to have this like checkbox theory of, of truth. Like, oh, here's a little commandment, I do this, and then I'm going to get blessed. Like God is a vending machine. I'm going to check off all these boxes, and then my life's going to be blessed. It's kind of like the prosperity gospel of certain Protestants, where you right. put in the right things and out pops all these blessings from God like a vending machine. But that's not, that's actually not true. And mm-hmm. on the surface... These beatitudes don't ring true because there are people who mourn. Brianna Taylor's family, mm-hmm. they're not going to get comforted. Right? There are people who long for justice in this world who aren't going to see it. Mm-hmm. Um, the merciful don't obtain mercy. Sometimes, you know, all of these things aren't true on the surface. But what Jesus is saying is, I'm turning this upside down and we're living into and what in me in the person of myself, all these things are breaking into the world. And this is connected in with what we have in the next chapter, in the, in the, uh, which is in the next chapter, both in Matthew and in Third Nephi, the Lord's Prayer. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we see the, the hints of this is starting. So this kingdom has been inaugurated in the person of Jesus, and we're living into the things as they should be rather than the things that they are. So that's kind of, um, yeah, this isn't good advice to follow, 
this is an announcement of something great to come. And a lot of these are in the future tense, mm. right? You see? So I just want to um, read just a couple of paragraphs from Esau McCulley's book, Reading While Black. This is the second time we've mentioned this guy's book on the show, Esau. You got to pay us too, bro. <laughs> Maybe we should get sponsors. Maybe we should get sponsors, Derek. Yeah. Yes, sir. Okay. So here's, I'm not, he has a, several pages about the Beatitudes and peacemakers, but here's what he says. He first starts out talking about how mourning is to be saddened about the state of the world and to mourn is to care. And here's, here's where I'm going to quote him. He says, Quote, a theology of mourning allowed Reverend Dr. King to look on the suffering of the people in Birmingham and refuse to turn away. Mourning calls on all of us to recognize our complicity in the sufferings of others. We do not simply mourn for the sins of the world. We mourn for our own greed, lusts, and desires that allow us to exploit others. Sin is more than exploitation, but it is certainly not less. A theology of mourning never allows us the privilege of apathy. Mm. We can never put the interests of our families or our country over the suffering of the world. The second beatitude at the center of our reflections moves beyond the suspicion raised in our mourning. It articulates our hope. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice. Pause just a second. The, the Greek word dikaiosune can be translated either righteousness or justice. A lot of languages like French, Spanish, Latin only have one word for those, uh, and English has two. So we miss the connection between righteousness and justice, which the, the Greek word means being in a state of right relationship. Um, but back to this. Esau says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be filled. Hungering and thirsting for justice is nothing less than the continued longing for God to come and set things right. It is a vision of the just society established by God that does not waver in the face of evidence to the contrary. Mourning is not enough. We must have a vision for something different. Justice is that difference. Jesus then calls for a reconfiguration of the imagination in which we realize that the options presented to us by the world are not all that there is. What do you think of that? Isn't that powerful? So powerful, man. I really just like how he really puts people on notice by letting us know that apathy is basically not an option. Like we are complicit, like we are obligated to mourn with people uh, in their state of mourning. And to do with anything less is to shirk our Christian discipleship. I really just greatly appreciate mm -hmm. that he called that out because I feel like as members of the church or just as Christians in general, we can, we can forget that we can forget what it means to be a Christian. We could, we, we can seek comfort without necessarily seeking Christ. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, uh, that, 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 that's a problem because as soon as we stop worrying about other people, as soon as we stop, uh, seeking to comfort the afflicted, we stop being disciples and I don't feel like Jesus could have been any more clear when he began his ministry by not just telling us to care about people in pain, but by caring about people in pain. Mm -hmm, he mm -hmm. performed like three or four miracles before the Sermon on the Mount, like between him actually uh, declaring who he was and actually delivering the Sermon on the Mount. He performed like three miracles of healing, which is, I mean, Jesus was Jesus just for those like brief three chapters demonstrated that he was all about that life, all about it. And how can we do any less? And my favorite line out of this is where Esau says, uh, maybe I should call him Reverend Dr. Esau McCulley because he earned both of those. Hmm. Um, a theology of mourning never allows us the privilege of apathy. It's a whole word. It's a whole word. Anything else uh, with regard to the uh, Beatitudes that you want to focus on before moving on to some of these other chapters? So I have another thought. If we look at verse 10, it says, And blessed are all they who are persecuted for my name's sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then it goes on to expand that and say, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute, and say all men of evil against you falsely. 
let's talk about this because anyone who is a true follower of Jesus is going to be persecuted like Jesus. Jesus was persecuted by his own people, by the people who knew him, by the people mm-hmm. who were close to him. Mm-hmm. When we follow Jesus, we're going to be persecuted by our own people. We're going to be persecuted by religious authorities. We're going to be persecuted by by um, secular, governmental, military authorities, right? And that's tough. Um, and why why are we blessed when when we're persecuted? And the thing is that, well, he says, you know, for great shall your reward be in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets who were. Uh, before you I mean there's something bigger than just saving your life there are things that I would rather die than cooperate with and by having that stance I am blessed right so it's it's tough to see the I you know to say that this is even though it sounds ironic oh if people do bad things to you then then you're good and you should be happy about it but I think that there is a true joy that comes from attaching your life to Jesus's life, no matter what it costs. There's just some, there's a joy that no one could rob you of. Absolutely. Not even death, not even torture, not even persecution. And choosing that is to choose the way of Christ. And like I said earlier, it's not about an institution. It's not about checking off a box of, oops, now I'm, now there's a little card. Now they don't use cards anymore, but there's a little. There's a hard drive in Salt Lake that has my name on it. <laughs> Look, I'm telling you on Judgment Day, that's not going to matter one bit. There's no no hard drive in Salt Lake that's going to come to your bat. You're going to be accountable. So so remember that. There are, there are things more important than... And, and this is something funny culturally about our... People talk about the church in a funny way. Have you noticed this? I don't know if you've noticed this. Probably. Keep talking a little um, bit. People say the church did this or the church did that or the church said that or the church came out with this. What they mean is some bureaucrat in a building in Salt Lake came out with that, right? The church is us. The church is the bride of Christ. We are the church. The church isn't 15 people. It's 15 million people or or now however many we have, 16 or 17 million. But we're the church. I mean, the body of Christ has a diverse and so... You would never point to the elbow of the body of Christ and say that's that's the church. And I think that's what we do when we pick out certain prominent leaders in the church and make them to be all there is in the church. That they speak for the whole church or that the handbook is the church or the whatever, the newsroom is the church. <laughs> that's not the church. And even if it is, the church as an institution is not the focus on the sermon of the sermon on the mount. It's about the kingdom breaking into the lives of individuals in a way that changes the entire world one foothold at a time. Yes, sir. That is one reason I feel like, uh, you know, Jesus's quote of Isaiah prior prior to his Sermon on the Mount is so important because he is saying and declaring more than once and in more than one way that He's about to change people's lives, not not just with some words, not just with some teachings, not just with some debates with scholars and Pharisees and scribes. He's about to make people do things that are actually going to change the world. He is about to move his theology in a very practical and very personal way, which I just think is so powerful. He really went among these people uh, that needed help, he went among these people who were in pain, and he moved them in very meaningful ways which is, that's what all of us should be striving to do. All of us should be striving to live out our faith and live out our discipleship in ways that change the world. We don't do people's services by declaring that gay sex is bad or that gay marriage is bad. That is not, that's not doing anything. That is not, that is not real theology. That is the fakest religiosity I can think of because not only did that not pass the Savior's lips, but it is so uncompassionate like there's no compassion behind that at all and that's the same way i feel about all lives matter people who try to weaponize the gospel to say that social justice causes are not appropriate for latter-day saints i'm just like have you not read the scriptures have you not read the bible have you not listened to my 2.5 hour video there we go (laughs) rebecca taylor if you listening 
<laughs> yeah. But, you know, you're totally right about that, Derek. Just this is, this is one of the biggest messages of the Sermon on the Mount is that Christ is ready and Christ is expecting us to not just believe things, but to like really do things. And as you said so eloquently, break into the world in meaningful and compassionate ways. And, you know, there's a substantial difference in the historical context between what was going on in first century Galilee and Judea and then what was going on in the New World. Because here you have a dominant Roman Empire who has colonized and occupied uh, the Holy Land. And you had the Jews had limited freedoms, limited, you know, there was just all, everything that goes with oppression and colonization was happening here. And Jesus spoke these things into that mess. Now, I don't know exactly, we've got a different mess. There's still a mess in the New World. Still a it's mess. It's a different mess. Right. It, it's not that they're minorities colonized by a larger power. They just have this all this other stuff going on, and I'm not an expert on all the history of what was going on there, other than what we've just read in the Book of Mormon. But let's talk about this. I want to bring out two pieces of wisdom here in chapter 12 of 3rd Nephi. And this is also exact, basically exactly the same in, in Matthew's version. So in verses 33 through 37, Jesus talks about swearing and making oaths. And this is about trying to add words to your words to make them more believable, right? To say... But here's what Jesus says. Instead of um, instead of swearing by all these other things, you should just let your yes be a yes and let your no be a no. And I thought about this. And he says anything more is, is comes from the evil one. And, you know, I thought about this in terms of something I learned in person from Rabbi B'nai Lappi. And everyone, if you didn't know I was gay, would think I have a crush on her. <laughs> based on how much I talk about her. Mm -hmm. But I have had, one of the highlights of my life is learning from her in person. When One time when she came to Boston, and she taught us from the uh, Babylonian Talmud, Ketubot 2b, in the original Aramaic, and, and I am always going to remember learning this text with her. And I'm going to make this the short version. Basically, so this 4th century rabbi of the Talmud named Rava got into a, a dispute over something, and it had to do with the technicalities of divorce decrees and what would happen. Well, I'm not even going to get into the, what, what, what the context is. But anyway, what he did was overturned centuries of Torah, centuries of tradition that um, taught very clearly a certain principle. And... He overturned it for the sake of of women who would have been in a very stuck spot if the uh, law had remained as it was. And people asked him, like, are you really going to overturn Torah based on your own moral intuition? Like, not based on citing the scripture, not based on citing some tradition, but just based on his own moral intuition, are you really going to overturn Torah? And he answered them with one word. Yes. And I think that is that is really beautiful. And this is kind of what, this is along the lines of what Jesus is saying here. You don't need to go on to these extra elaborate additional words to get people to believe you. Your yes should be yes. And if someone says, well, Derek, are you really going to overturn what President Oaks said based on your own moral to intuition grounded in God's word? I'm going to say yes. And you don't need an explanation, right? I mean, there's times where I'm going to give an explanation, but then there's times I'm not. Like, I don't need to give more than a yes. Because Dallin Oaks is not the final authority here. And so if someone says, are you really going to overturn what he said? I'm going to say yes. And not be afraid to say yes. See, that's, I think that's really the power of the Sermon on the Mount is it teaches you not to be afraid. And you're about to say something. No, I was just going to be like, I don't believe Derek would be afraid ever. Like, I don't think anybody who listens to the show is going to be like, 
Oh, Derek might be scared to say that. Derek, I'd never known you to be afraid to ever claim your space. So that you needed to clarify that <laughs> was just something that seemed a tad redundant. Right. But, but there's this cultural thing of like, it's somehow inappropriate to say that, wait a second, maybe we should double check what these people think out of their own arbitrary um, gut feeling, what they think is the will of God. I mean, that's really what all of the scriptures are about, is double-checking what people think is the will of God. Mm. And let's go back to this next piece in the Sermon on the Mount, the, ne- the next paragraph, which has three brilliant pieces of non, um, non-resist, um, non-violent resistance here. This is the whole uh, turning the other cheek, which actually has a strategic impact. I really hope so. And there's the suing... Okay, and I love this in verse 40. And it says, if someone sues you and tries to take away your coat, let him take, uh, let him have your cloak also, which he didn't ask for in the lawsuit. Now let's talk about the impacts of this. Picture a first century Galilean law court. Your opponent comes into you and apparently has some right to take away your garment. Now, in the ancient Near East, people wore two garments. They wore an un, uh, a, an undergarment next to the skin and then an outer garment. And Jesus says, if someone takes away one of them, give them both, and that leaves you naked. Now, you would think that you lose, but you actually win because the whole village sees what this rich man did to you as a poor man, taking away your cloak, and then you will voluntarily give him your undergarment too and leaving you naked on the steps. If you are not afraid to do that, what you will do is embarrass that person because you are not in a legal position to win against this guy because apparently he has some claim on your co- on your coat, right? Maybe you owe him money. You can't win on that level, but you can win on a moral level and you can win in public optics. And I think there's a power there. No matter how down you are, there is a power in... Um, in this manage, manner of nonviolent resistance, because another alternative would be just go beat beat him up and take your your, your you know your garment back. That one. Well, that's I James. Choose that one. Okay. <laughs> well, that's not what Jesus is teaching right here. I'm just saying. Whatever, like, man. Okay. You put your hand on my cheek, you can catch these hands. I'm not turning <laughs> no cheek. I think there's a time and a place for that. I right. do. But I'm still struggling to parse out when exactly that is. When is the time to let them smite the other cheek? Yeah. When to give them your cloak as well? I This is one of those things I just haven't figured out, Derek. And I think there's a... In each of these things, especially you know, if someone compels you to go a mile, which Roman law allowed soldiers to compel uh, people to go a mile with them to carry stuff, to go an extra mile with them is to embarrass them. To turn the other cheek is to embarrass them. To go naked on the steps of the of the law court is to embarrass them. And I think there's there's a way of reclaiming your ironically reclaiming your dignity. Because what you're left with is you're left with your character and they're left with their character and mm-hmm. the whole world sees it. You know, I thought about this type of strategy in terms of BYU. There's this whole mess about, you know, straight couples. And it's not about the law of chastity because straight couples can kiss and hold hands and do all these other stuff, all these other things and not violate the law of chastity, right? So people make a big deal about, oh, the law of chastity is the same for straight people and gay people. Like, that's a complete non-issue. Because if you really had this law of chastity working out the same for both, you would just say, well, you'd have married gay couples and you'd have straight gay, uh, straight married couples. And, uh, and the rules would be the same for both, you know. Um, but that's not the way it is. But let's get back to this BYU thing. And apparently BYU would has this policy of like you can't hold hands. And so here's my theory based on Jesus' radical nonviolent resistance is what I would tell couples to do at BYU is, well, if they're not going to let you hold hands, what you should do is hold two corners of a handkerchief and walk around campus that way. And then you can tell everyone, hey, look, we're not holding hands. But everyone will see what these policies are doing to you and make it hurt them 
people will look and say, is this really what we're doing to gay people? Is this, this is, it makes it real for everyone to see we are treating these people worse than dogs because there's no prohibition against dogs being affectionate with one another. There's actually probably no, you know, um, like literally, like if you see two dogs frolicking together, playing with one another naked, um, <laughs> that's just because dogs are already naked. But you see my point. Like there are gay folks in the church are treated worse than dogs. We're not allowed the same affection that even dogs are allowed to have. And strategically going around, instead of holding hands and violate the policy, because they don't have the power to overturn the policy, but they can have the power to show everyone the effects of that policy and how awful they are and get people to ask, is that what we're doing to those people? This is what I like about Jesus' ministry right here is that he exposed the ugly injustices in all of this and all of these kingdom of the world options by offering a radically distinct and compassionate alternative. For example, Jesus, instead of like, he never actually entered into the fray of particular debates about the status of women in society, but he did expose the ugliness of the patriarchy by the countercultural way he treated women, ignoring negative consequences for his reputation. He befriended them. He gave them culturally unprecedented dignity. We saw him do this with, uh, you know, the woman who washed his feet with her tears. We saw him do this with uh, the woman taken in adultery. And then we watched him do the same for social outcasts. He served lepers. He served the blind, uh, the demonized, the poor. He, uh, did that for prostitutes and tax collectors. One of my favorite stories, and I alluded this to last night, is when he called a publican, a tax collector, as one of his apostles. Like he gave dignity to these people, not with words, but with actual actions. His his very actions were a challenge to the to the uh, uh, to the inhumanity of social structures of the day that served as a mustard seed alternative that started small but grew slowly, mm -hmm. much like, yes, sorry. And I think there, I hate to make this into a platitude, but no matter what people do to you, there's probably things that they can't do to you. Um, they can't make you change your character. Like you can, if you want, change, keep your char good character throughout the whole thing. They also... Um, just like in all these examples, no matter what they do to you, there always is something that you can still do to reclaim dignity on your own terms. Whether it's saying, look, yeah, I know you have the right to make me go a mile. I know you have the right to take away my coat, but I still have something I can do that will end up shaming you for it and keeping you accountable for it. There's there's always something and there's always hope. And I I think... So many LGBTQ people in the church feel that there's nothing we can do. And I'm like, oh, there's all sorts of stuff we can do. And we just have to figure out what what there is. And this ties into what I wanted to say about this other sheep. Because in John chapter 10, Jesus tells the people in the old world, other sheep I have. Okay, And here Jesus comes to the Nephites and says, you know what, you're these other sheep that I was talking about, but I didn't explain it to them because they weren't ready to hear it. But this is a beautiful principle that the people in the old world weren't even aware that there were other sheep. And I think this is so true in the church. People just focus on the institution. People focus on who's visibly part of the church or the culture. And forget that there are always other sheep. And I think LGBTQ people, in addition to every other marginalized population, we're all equally God's children. And so the surprising thing about this other sheep is that they didn't know about the other sheep. And I think that's exactly what happened. People ask these questions all the time. Well, how are you going to make room for, for LGBT people? How do you this and how you do that and, and give me an answer? And may, A, I don't owe them an answer. And B, this is an exact, exact parallel of people thinking that they're the only sheep. 
that the fold is so small that they know all the other sheep. And there can't even be sheep that belong to God that are outside their knowledge of who who's in the fold. And I just want to declare that we're in the fold too. Or, or I mean, however it is. Like, there's another fold that you don't know about, right? Yeah. And God has a plan for you. And that... um. And and God has more plans, and, and this gets back to some, someone was asking us online about eternal marriage and heterosexual requirements for exaltation. I'm like, I don't owe you an answer. Uh, I don't. But it's another example of people can't even think out of the side of the box of heterosexuality. Like, Dude. oh, you need to be sealed in order to want to, like... Like, not only can they not think out of the box, but they are so willing to parrot what has been repeated to them without having done the work of so much as reading what these texts actually say. Like it's very, it's very, very lazy. That's like one of my biggest pet peeves in these conversations and in this discussion, particularly as it pertains right. to LGBTQ. And rights. I have to do the work in order to survive. Right, I have you to do, it. do the they work. They don't have to do anything. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to go back to Jesus saying, "Blessed are the peacemakers," and I want to quote some more from Esau McCulley's book, Reading While Black. Here's what he says. Peacemaking involves assessing the claims of groups in conflict and making a judgment about who is correct and who is incorrect. Peacemaking, then, cannot be separated from truth-telling. The church's witness does not simply involve denouncing the excesses of both sides and making moral equivalencies, It involves calling injustice by its name. If the church is going to be on the side of peace in the United States, then there has to be an honest accounting of what this country has done and continues to do to black and brown people. Moderation, or the middle ground, is not always the loci of righteousness. And loci is a word meaning a place. Places. Like local. Yeah. Okay, got it. (laughs) Yes. Um... Uh, housing discrimination has to be named. Unequal sentences and unfair policing has to be named. Sexism and the abuse and commodification of the black female body has to end. Otherwise, any peace is false and non-biblical. Beyond naming, there has to be some vision for the righting of wrongs and the restoration of relationships. The call to be peacemakers is the call for the church to enter the messy world of politics and point toward a better way of being human. Mm. Close quote. This resonates with something, of course, that Dr. King said about some people wanting a negative piece that's just the absence of tension or contention versus a positive piece, which is the presence of justice. And that gets back to the real meaning of the uh, Hebrew word shalom, which is translated as peace. But it's not so much the absence of war, but a sense of wholeness and integrity in individuals and in society that it's the way that things are supposed to be. That's what shalom is. Mm -hmm. And so I just want to tie this back into um, remembering Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. You know, in Christianity, we have these little platitudes of, oh, you know, they're in a better place or it's all in God's timing or it's like they're... uh, you know they're gonna rise again, or they're gonna—they're resting now in peace, and all this other, all these other things. But in Judaism, instead of saying those things, they say, um, "May her memory be a blessing." And I hope that we can remember her, and that re- that memory will be the blessing of action, and that we continue her life's work. That she. Uh, Obviously, is not continuing in this life, but we can remember that and keep it going and keep her name alive. Before we uh, wrap up with a couple of housekeeping items, just want to remind you guys that Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs, so you can stay up to date on the latest releases, listen to these new shows, and the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, on Lyceum.fm, that's L-Y-C-E-U-M dot F-M, or at DialogueJournal.com slash Podcast Network. 
That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Derek, where can people find us? You can find us at beyondtheblock.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. All the events that we've discussed before are now past or currently happening, and we've exhausted talking about them. Only event coming up on the horizon soon is uh, I am going to be speaking as part of the Race in the Book of Mormon study series that has been ongoing for the last few weeks. It's hosted by a, the YSA stake in the uh, Washington, D.C. area. Uh, it's going to be September 27th at 8 p.m. Eastern time. We'll put a link to the sign-up sheet in the show notes if you guys want to attend that. I'm going to be talking about, well, I mean, they haven't approved my title yet, but basically going to be making the case for Jesus Christ saying Black Lives Matter using much of what we talked about today to do so. So if you guys want to attend that, again, that will be found in our show notes, and we can also post it to our social media. Finally, just want to let you guys know about our Glow page that we've been plugging for like the last two or three months in an effort to sustain the work of the show and also improve it in various ways to further the mission of Beyond the Block to make Mormonism accessible to everyone. We launched this Glow page where if you're willing and able, you can throw some coins our way in the form of a monthly contribution or a one-time contribution. And those who contribute anything will get access to all the benefits of being in collaboration with us, including access to our collaborator Facebook group, where you can interact with us more directly, provide feedback and ideas for the show. You can access our notes and do so much more. So if you don't have any coins to throw at us, you can just share our glow page on your social medias and you can still join our collaborator community. We'd love to be in collaboration with y'all and conversation with y'all talk a little bit more about the show. And uh, it's just a good time. We, we thoroughly enjoy the, current company of our collaborators that uh, have joined us and we would love nothing more than for you guys to be a part of that um oh and finally just a couple of thanks to our friends that help us produce the show tamara kemsley for editing it and for uh, david doyle for editing our transcripts and also for eden Wen, who's been managing our social media for the last little while all of you guys are rock stars and we uh, greatly appreciate your contributions to our show because we are not very literate with a lot of this stuff. Anything else, Derek? Nope, that's it for me. Very good. Then thank you guys for tuning in this week till we meet again next week.